Amen. So my name is Justin Cabot. I'm one of the pastors here. And this morning, I get to share with you my greatest shame. Here's what happened. It was 10 years ago. I'm 20 years old, and I get employed by Edgewater. I've been here for 10 years, and there was no general competency exam when I got hired. So on some level, this isn't entirely on me. And what happened is we were a mobile church. So we, at the time, were meeting at Fruitdale Elementary, and we would go, and we'd have to take a whole big trailer full of stuff down to that school, switch everything in their classrooms out to be a church, and then at the end of service, switch everything out to be back to school like we were never there. And we did that every Wednesday and every Sunday. And the person who's responsible for moving the trailer there and back twice a week, every week, is obviously the most recent person who's hired. I've, I don't know what I'm doing, but I figure it out. It's pretty easy, right? You just get the ball, you back it up to the ball hitch. It's a van, it's a trailer. You, you lower it, you get it connected, you connect the chains and you're on your way. And we do that rain, snow, sunshine twice a week for church. Well, here's what happened. I'm doing that for about a couple of months. And when a man has done something for a couple of months, no problem, he's a professional. I know what I'm doing. There's been no issue. Well, apparently there's a large ball, a middle ball, and a small ball. What you want is the middle ball. And the van, I back it up to where the trailer is and I go to lower it and I realize I'm getting really good at this thing because it only took me my first try and it just really fit over easy. I didn't have to jiggle the lock or nothing. And I look, I'm like, that's really just fit in there good. I'm like getting so good at this thing. But I do notice it's a little smaller. Like it's the small ball. And, but it's fine, you know, everything's fine. I connect the chains, I get in the van, I do a little test drive. It, it lurches a little when you go quick or when you hit your brakes, cause it's, it's the small ball, but otherwise we're good. So I start to head towards Fruitdale. So I go down this road, hit the four-way stop, get onto M Street. At this first corner on M Street, you have the Frog Prince. It's a pond fish supply store. About 30 yards beyond that, there's a bump in the road. If you've never noticed it, you're gonna notice it from here on out, the rest of your life. Well, it's 35 miles an hour on that street. I'm 20 years old, so I'm going about 50. And when I hit that, the first thing I notice is I hit that bump, which I hit twice a week, and I just hear, and I look in my rearview mirror and there's sparks everywhere. And I'm like, that's, out of the, the ordinary. So I pull over, this, the, the tank, the tongue where the ball hitches is at a 45 degree angle. It is just smashed. But I was still able to get it back on. And so I just drove slow. <laughs> we gotta have church. So I drive slow to Fruitdale, we set up, we tear down, I drive it back, and then I have to have the conversation with the guy who's ultimately responsible for the trailers here at Edgewater. His name's Sean. He was stoked. Anyway, we get, the, we get it fixed, and the, the middle ball miraculously reappears, and everything is fine for a few months. Well, then what happens is one day I back the van up to the trailer, and I lower it, and it just won't go in because the ball's too big. So it just sits on there wrong. And I'm like, dang it. So what do I do now? Well, I could go find the other ball, but that takes time, that's effort. So no, let's figure something else out. So 
What I realize is, I don't know if you know how trailers are put together. I'm a professional. So they, they're put together like this, right? Like a triangle, the two beams come together, and then there's the part where the ball goes in. And so I figure if I could back the van up a little further and go past where the receiver is, I can go right into that triangle and it could just nest right there. I told this to my dad for the first time last night and he just goes, you didn't really do that. I did. So I back that van up. I lower it and it sits in there and I'm thinking like, I, I'm a genius, man. Like, I'll, this is all I'm ever gonna do. That's so much easier. I just, I'm, I'm shaving so much time off my week. So I put the chains back on. I do a little test drive in the parking lot and we're good. So I'm going 50 down M Street. I hit the same bump. And I go out and I look and it's more broke. Like every time we, we re-welded that sucker, it just got more weak. Long story short, it happened a third time. If you have a fundamental misunderstanding of how something works, you're gonna misuse things, things are gonna get broken, you're gonna crash and burn and embarrass yourself in front of your entire church. That might just be for me, but the general principle is if you have a fundamental misunderstanding of important things in your life, things get broken, things get messed up, you hit a bump in the road and all of a sudden you're upside down, especially with the really big things in our life. Like if you have a fundamental misunderstanding of who Jesus is and what Jesus has come to do, when you hit the real bumps in your life, when storms come your way, when, when real tribulation and trials and issues, you face them, you're gonna find yourself standing on the side of the road at M Street looking silly. And so our text today comes from the book of John. It's John chapter six. If you have your Bible, you can turn there. Our text today is really supposed to illustrate and, and show you and I, we can't have this misunderstanding of who Jesus is and what he came to do. The disciples were beginning to have a fundamental misunderstanding of who he is. So Jesus is gonna clear that up right now. So it's John chapter six, starting in verse 16. If you don't have your Bible, we'll have it up here on the screen. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea got into a boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. So here's the context of the book of John, just real quick. You have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the four gospel narratives that tell us the story of Jesus. It's his birth, it's his life, it's the things that he said, it's the places that he went, and it's ultimately what he did and accomplished. They're the four gospel narratives that are written by people who were around Jesus at that time, either his best friends or people who were just giving a recounting of this is what Jesus said and did. And they're written to a different audience group, every single one of them. So Matthew, for example, is written primarily to the Jews. That's why there's a genealogy that goes from Jesus all the way back to Abraham. 
It's starting out by saying Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise that God made to Abraham through you, someone's gonna come that all the families of the world will be blessed. That is Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of all the promises that God had laid out and led Israel, Israel for. So that's Matthew. Mark is primarily written towards the Romans. You have a blue collar society. We, we have a fast paced life. We got a lot of stuff we got to get done today. Just tell me what I need to know. So it's a very short book. Things are, are it's a synopsis in a lot of places. And there's a lot of action verbs. Then he went here. Then he did this. Immediately he left and went to this other place. So it's a very quick, fast-paced book. Luke is primarily written to the Gentiles. So in his genealogy, Jesus doesn't just go back to Abraham, but it actually goes all the way back to Adam, saying we all came from Adam. Jesus is here to reconcile all people, regardless of history or nationality. And he's the one who ultimately is gonna crush the serpent's head. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they contain 70% similar information. So they're covering 70% similar stories, just different perspectives pointing into them and saying, here's what I saw Jesus did. Here's what he said. And they're not contradictory, but they're complementary to one each other. They give us different insight. If you and I are at the same place and we see the same situation, we're gonna have two different perspectives. That's three different perspectives. The book of John is 90% unique. So the book of John it was written after those other three. And John's goal, John's audience, John's reason for writing it is he's saying, I need everyone to know who Jesus is and what he came to do by showing his miracles, by showing his life, by showing his work. And it's 90% unique from the perspective of Jesus's best buddy, John. And so Jesus did a whole lot of miracles in his life. But the ones that John has chosen to write about and show and recount are the... Are, they illustrate for us, this is why Jesus came. It's not just to show his power. This is how cool Jesus is. This is the crazy things that Jesus can do, but it's to tell us this is who Jesus is and this is what he came to do. So John chapter six, the story where Jesus is walking on the water, super famous verse, immediately follows Jesus feeding the 5,000, which is also a super familiar verse, passage. So 5,000 people have come because they've heard that Jesus is doing miracles, he's healing people, he's a phenomenal teacher, and they follow him out to this desolate place and they get really hungry. There's 5,000 men plus their women plus their children and they're hungry. Jesus takes a kid's lunchable, five loaves of bread and two fish, divides it up amongst everyone to where there's 12 basketfuls left over. And the people, what they do is they start to say, look at this amazing guy. And they're all... Old Testament steeped individuals. So they would remember, they would immediately know when was the last time that a multitude of people was fed when they were out in the wilderness, when there was no food and no hope of food. Well, it was Moses. It was, Moses delivered the people out from Egypt and he fed a multitude when there was no hope for food. And now Jesus is doing that exact same thing. This is the prophet. This is a deliverer just like Moses. In fact, here's exactly what they say. It's John chapter six, starting at verse 14, just two verses before we started, says this. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Look, he's just like Moses. This is indeed the deliverer, the Messiah that we need. And in verse 15, perceiving then, that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. 
the people are saying, here's a man with real power. Just like when Egypt was oppressing God's people and God used Moses to deliver the Israelites out from under the thumb of Egypt, we are oppressed by Rome. And now we have a new deliverer who's just like Moses, who's gonna lead us out. We need to make this guy king. We need a deliverer. We need to put this guy in charge. And Jesus, knowing that they're gonna make him king by force, says, oh no, that's not what I came to do. Sends the disciples off and goes up on a mountain by himself, which is so weird. Because isn't the whole point that Jesus came so that people would recognize him as king and call him king? Isn't that an odd thing that they say, let's make this guy king. And Jesus is like, oh no, that's, you fundamentally misunderstand what I'm here to do. I, I, and, he go, and he separates himself from them. What's the deal here? They wanted a king. They wanted to make Jesus king, just like you and I want a coherent political leader. I was vague. If someone came to mind, that's a you thing. It's not a me thing. But that's what they wanted. They wanted to put someone in charge who could fix their issues. Because think about it. They see a guy who takes a little bit of food and multiplies it to feed everybody. They think, dude, we need to put this guy in charge of agriculture. If this guy was in charge of the agriculture of our government, we'll never be hungry again. They're saying inflation is so high, I can't even afford to feed my family. If we put this guy Jesus in charge, everyone's gonna be fed. There's gonna be no food shortage ever. He fed us all with nothing and there's 12 baskets full left over. We need to put this guy in charge of, of food. He's gonna fix the economy. They said, man, this guy, Jesus, he's honest. He's a really good leader. Look at all of us who just organically have come together to hear what he has to say and see what he can do. We need to put him in charge of the government. He's gonna fix all the corruption. He's gonna clean it all up. And then, hold on. <laughs> this is not a rally yet. He says, hey, society is saying that certain things are true when they're false. Society is saying that certain things are good when they're evil. We need to put this guy in a position where he can fix society. This guy is, we need to put him in a position so he could fix all of our economic problems, all of our political problems, and all of our social problems. But the thing is, when you and I elect a political leader into office, you and I never say, I cannot wait for this person to have an influence in how I talk to my spouse. When we elect a political leader, we never say, I cannot wait for this person to have an influence in how I raise my kids. We never say, oh, I can't wait for them to take office because they're gonna get to choose 100% of where all my money goes. We never elect a person into office and say, I can't wait for this person to get to dictate where I spend 100% of my time. We never elect someone into office and say, I can't wait for this person to get to decide how and when I forgive the people who have hurt me the worst. We never say, I want to elect someone who has access into every single aspect of my life. And just like we do with electing people, these Israelites were saying, here is someone whose power I can make fit my agenda. They can fix the areas that I want to have fixed, but I'm not going to give him lordship of my life. But he can, he can fix my government. He can fix the economy. He can fix social issues. No problem. 
The thing is, it's a fundamental misunderstanding of who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do because Jesus didn't come to fix Israel's political, social, or economic issues as bad as they were and as serious as they were. He came to fix the real problem and the real issues that they could not overcome. If Jesus came to just fix those issues, that's all he would have ever done and it would have been an inspiring story, but it would have meant nothing for you and for me. They are looking for him to be king as long as he fits their agenda. It's the wrong sized ball in the wrong hitch. That's the whole idea of the prosperity gospel, right? Hey, if you guys follow Jesus, then all of your problems he's gonna fix. You'll never be out of money again. All of your issues with your spouse are gonna dissolve and you'll be reconciled. You'll never have to change the oil in your car again. I have heard someone say, yeah, I didn't tithe. And so the transmission in my car went out. It's like, dude, that's a fundamental misunderstanding of how Jesus works. You're living in a really scary reality. Like God punishes you that badly for for missing out on something. How many of you have heard, if you accept Jesus into your life, all you're gonna have is peace and prosperity and love in your life. The people who told you that forgot to say, after you die. In this life, Jesus says, there's gonna be pain and there's gonna be tribulation and there's gonna be hardship. Jesus does not say, hey, come and follow me as we chill at the beach. Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me, that life is gonna be really, really hard. And if you have a misunderstanding of who Jesus is and what he came to do, when you hit the bumps in your life, even if it's the same bump over and over and over again, you're gonna continue to crash and burn. My wife, when she was growing up, she got sick. It was like a minor sickness. And she had a family member say to her, you know, if you just had more faith, you wouldn't have got sick. Do you know how excited I am every time that person gets the flu? It's like, oh, that's interesting, man. Shouldn't have skipped church. No, it's crazy. That is a fundamental misunderstanding of who Jesus is because just the logic of it doesn't make sense. So you're telling me John the Baptist, that God said, oh, there's been no one like this guy, John the Baptist. His lack of faith caused him to be beheaded? Oh, you say, well, maybe. Okay, well, how about Jesus's? Show me his lapse of faith that caused him to be crucified. No, it doesn't, it doesn't work. It logically doesn't pan out. Jesus did not come to fix the, the areas that we say this is so important, the political, the social, the economic issues of our lives. He wants so much more than that. Jesus is saying, I, divide, I divided bread amongst all of you, but I'm the bread of heaven. I wanna give you eternal life. I wanna conquer sin and death. I didn't just come to fix these, the minutia problems of your life primarily. I came to fix the problems in your life that you have no hope of overcoming, of conquering sin and death and alienation, us from God and us from each other. Jesus is saying, hey, my body's gonna be broken. I am the bread of life. I'm gonna go to the cross to pay for your sins and now you'll be able to be reconciled with God and now you'll be able to be reconciled with one another. And once our hearts are healed and we have that relationship with God, everything changes. The way that we view God, the way that we view ourselves, the way that we view others, everything changes. And the problem with the bread miracle just on its own is it looks like Jesus has a power that we can just tap into and get a hold of at our convenience whenever we need to fit our agenda. Wow, you have this power? I really need a king. I really need a Messiah. Let's team up in this area, but stay out of certain aspects of my life. 
Jesus, I really need a king, but don't touch my wallet. Jesus, I really need a king, but don't touch the way I spend my time or how I talk to my spouse or how I lead my kids. That's why Jesus does this story next. The story of walking on water in all the gospel narratives that shared the, the 5,000 feeding comes immediately after because it refutes this delusion that we can somehow control Jesus. It refutes this misunderstanding that we can have about who he is and why he came. And so he sends the disciples away. He goes up on a mountain by himself. And Jesus, he never does a miracle as just a naked expression of his power just to show, wow, look at how cool I am. Look at this great thing that I did. There's always a purpose when he does a miracle. So there's a joke that I tell the youth staff that Jesus and his disciples, they go to a restaurant. You have to get a pretty large table and they all sit together and the waitress come and she says, hey, welcome to Olive Garden. What can I get you? And Jesus, the disciples are kind of giggling and Jesus says, shh, uh, we'll, we'll just have water. And all the disciples start to laugh. The joke is Jesus can turn water into wine. That's the, that's the joke. I don't think that Jesus continuously went out to dinners and turned water into wine as just say, hey, look at this cool party trick that I can do uniquely. I think that Jesus did that miracle to express something about himself and to show the Israelites, this is who I am. And so this walking on water isn't just this neat thing that Jesus can do, but it explicitly says something about him, that he's not just a deliverer on par with Moses, but he's something so much more. So let's reread, it's John chapter six, look at, at verse 16. The feeding of the 5,000 has just ended. They said, let's make this guy king. Jesus sends the disciples off, goes up to a mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea got into a boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat and they were frightened. So the Sea of Galilee sits below sea level and it's in the middle of this valley. And so at the end of the day, all of the cold air would come rushing into that valley and settle into the Sea of Galilee and all of the hot air would go rushing out of that valley. And what it would often happen, the Sea of Galilee was known for its sudden and fierce storms. That as the cold air came in, the hot air came out, the water's getting rustled up and it was known for, wow, a storm just appeared. It was often known for that. So you have these guys, these disciples who are really well-versed well in seafare. They're fishermen. They have spent a lot of time on boats together. They have a lot of cumulative knowledge of how to travel through storms. They've seen a bunch of storms. And what they find is they're out of control. They're in over their head and Jesus is not with them, but he's far away on a mountain. And now they are out of control, they're soaking wet. The other gospels tell us that they had been straining against the oars for hours and they're exhausted. I don't know if you guys have ever watched The Deadliest Catch, but it's a show where these guys go out to catch fish and crab and it's all filmed for our enjoyment to watch these guys struggle to survive. So we could be at home eating popcorn like, oh, hope you make it, dude. And what you'll see is boats that are as big as this building, you'll see them go vertical on the waves. 
Like, it's just amazing to watch that when storms really get ripping, there's nothing more destructive than a, a storm on water. Like, it is the most destructive force on earth. And you have these men who would know when things are bad are absolutely terrified. They're in a very destructive, bad spot. And so there's lots of imagery that you could put together when you think about Jesus walking on water in the middle of this really fierce, terrifying storm. So you have the boat going vertical, the disciples freaking out, and then you have Jesus walking towards them. And when you think about that, like when I try to put the imagery together, you would often think maybe Jesus is like, like coming over the hills and the valleys and, and sloshing through the breakers and, and stepping over the big spots. John specifically uses a word for walking. So there's a word in Greek for walking, like you just walk from A to B, but John deliberately and intentionally uses a word that means taking a stroll. So you can think about it this way. If you've been driving in your car for three hours and you think, oh, I just really need to go for a walk and stretch my legs, and you park your car and you just go for a walk. I'm gonna enjoy the smoke-free air and I'm just gonna enjoy walking in the grass. It's that kind of walk in this crazy, destructive storm. So you have the disciples who are frightened and I think it's pretty reasonable. Their boat's getting vertical. They're exhausted. They're soaking wet. And now something is approaching them. The book of Matthew says that when the disciples looked out and saw Jesus, they yelled, it's a ghost. Like, have you ever looked somewhere where you, there, nothing should be there and then there's something there and it just makes your heart leap out of your chest? Like I have a three-year-old son and we just got him his first big boy bed. And up until now, he's been contained because he's the kind of child who needs to be contained. We don't even have a nightlight in his room because if there's any source of light, he'll just stay up and play with his toys. So we got him a big boy bed and it's dead silent in my house for hours. And I'm thinking, well, I'm just gonna check on all the kids and I'll check on Leggy because he's got his first big boy bed. He's probably looks so cute in his big boy bed. I open that door and the dude is just standing in the middle of the room staring at me. It's the scariest thing I've ever seen. Just a little weirdo standing in the dark. He sleeps outside now. So they look out and they say, there is a, there's a ghost coming towards us. There's this person in the middle of the water coming towards us right now. And some commentators say, well, it's possible that Jesus was just walking along the shoreline and caught up with them and it appeared like he was walking on water. Okay, that's not true because if that's what happened, they wouldn't have called it a miracle. They would have called it a Wednesday, all right? Like Jesus is walking on the water in a leisurely way coming right towards them when they're in absolute dist distress. This is deliberately telling us the things that you and I have absolutely no control over in our lives. Nature, things that scare us, things that freak us out, all the bumps, all the speed bumps, all of the things that cause us to crash and burn, all the things we have absolutely no control over, Jesus has absolute control over. And the greatest, most uncontrollable forces in this world, the most powerful, deadly forces, not only does he have absolute power over them, but they have absolutely no power over him. Jesus is showing them, I'm not just bigger than Moses. I'm not just on par with Moses. I'm not just a replacement for Moses. I am the God of Moses. There's this Psalm it's Psalm 77, starting at verse 16, that you guys got to see. We'll have it up here on the screen. 
But Psalm 77, starting in verse 16, says this. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Imagine how your life would change if you had the perspective of the things that caused me to crash and burn, the speed bumps that I hit, the storms that I face in life, the deadliest, most terrifying, destructive forces that come my way. Those things are afraid of Jesus. They have absolutely no power over him and he has absolute power over them. How would the way that you face those circumstances change if we really believe that? It's phenomenal. Instead, or indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. Jesus is deliberately saying, I am the one who has infinite power. You cannot just use me to fit your agenda. I'm not a genie in a bottle where if you do things correctly, then I have to come out and do these things for you. I have a whole new agenda. I am the uncontrollable force. I'm the untamed Lord. Saying you can't just use me to fulfill your ambitions. This text is highlighting for you and me that Jesus doesn't want to just be a deliverer for our social, economic, or political issues, which are really important, but Jesus wants every part of us, and Jesus wants to first and foremost fix the biggest problems in our life, which is sin and death, separation from him, the stuff that only he can overcome. And then this next part for me is just really, really cool. I just nerd out on it, so you're gonna have to as well. Starts in verse 20. But he said to them, Jesus approaches the disciples. They're freaking out. It's a ghost. Jesus shows up and he greets them with, it is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Jesus approaches the disciples in the boat. And the first thing that he says to them is, it is I. And so these disciples, this group of people would have grown up every weekend going to the synagogue. That was their church. And every weekend they would have heard the Hebrew Old Testament had been translated into Greek so that everyone who lived in Rome could understand it and receive it. And that translation was called the Septuagint. Every weekend, these disciples would have heard the Septuagint being read. They would have heard the stories of Abraham meeting the angel of the Lord. They were, would have heard the stories of Moses talking to God in the burning bush and getting instruction. They would have heard about Elijah. They would have heard about Isaiah. They would have heard about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the furnace. They would have heard all of these stories in the Old Testament being said in the Greek. And when Jesus shows up to them and he says these specific words, it is I, a flood of context would have hit them in the head. All of a sudden, they're gonna be faced with the realization of this is who Jesus is. Jesus isn't just a cool guy with some party tricks who can turn water into wine and he's fun to hang out with and can multiply food. He's not just a deliverer to take back Rome for Israel. He is infinitely more than I ever expected. The exact words that Jesus says to the disciples, because it is I makes sense for an English reader when we read it. The exact words that Jesus says is ego iemi. And in the Greek, what that is, is I am. 
Jesus shows up and he says, I am, do not be afraid. Jesus said, I'm not here to replace Moses. I'm the guy who led and equipped Moses. When Moses met with God in the burning bush and God was telling him, you have been oppressed by Egypt. My people have been under Egypt's thumb for way too long. You are gonna lead them out. And Moses gave him all the reasons why I can't. Hey, there's so many reasons. I'm not the right guy. I'm ill-equipped. I'm in over my head. And he goes, when I get home and they ask me what God sent me, which one did? Because in Egypt, there's so many gods. Who do I tell them sent me? Jesus And God says, my name is I am that I am. Tell them I am sent you, that I'm the uncaused causer. I'm the one that by me and through me and for me, all things were made, that I hold all of creation together by my will, that I have always existed. Nothing has caused me to exist. I am the God who is. Jesus says, ego iemi, do not be afraid. It's me. Jesus is saying, I am that God. I'm not just a replacement for Moses. I am the God of Moses. And the number one command in the Bible for you and for me is do not be afraid. Why? Is it because God's like, man, your problems are just really trivial and you just have the wrong perspective and you just don't get it. And everything's gonna work out in the end, just chill out. Is, is that God's attitude and perspective towards us? Is that, does God say, don't be afraid because it's really not a big deal? Oh, your storm isn't really that big of a deal, guy. No, he says, don't be afraid. When, when Moses tells him, I'm the wrong guy because of this and because of that, and I can't talk right and people aren't gonna listen to me, God goes, yeah, but I'm gonna be with you. He says, don't be afraid because I'm with you. That's the number one reason we shouldn't be afraid. When I was in high school, I did my freshman, sophomore, junior, then senior year. And at the end of my senior year, the administration at Hidden Valley audited my credits like they do everybody. And what they realized is I had never taken a PE course. I had zero PE credits. I know this is peak human performance, so it's hard to imagine. And they said, well, you have to take a PE course. It's, it's mandated by the state, so we're gonna have to put you in freshman PE. And I said, guys, I'm a senior. Please don't put me in freshman PE. And they said, okay, you could take any other PE course. You just have to take an elective. So I looked, and the one that most conveniently fit my schedule, because seniors have a lot of wiggle room in their schedule, there's a block where only seniors could choose electives, and there was basketball elective. So I chose basketball. Do you know who the people are that choose basketball elective their senior year of high school? It's the varsity basketball team, that's it. So you have, for a whole term, the varsity basketball team and Justin Cabot. And when they drafted teams for who's gonna be on what side of the court, one person got picked last every time. Because these guys have been playing basketball since they were born I learned that basketballs are orange that morning, right? Like that's, that's the categories that we're in. So there's a whole term where I'm in this class and I cannot fail this class. So I'm just getting by. Like there's no number of baskets that I have to hit. I just have to dress down and I have to be on the court. When the team's over there, I have to run over there. And when the team's over there, I have to run over there. And we're just, I'm doing that day after day, week after week, just trying to get done with this term. Towards the end of the term, one of the other players knocks the ball out of someone else's hand and the basketball comes bouncing right towards me and I get it. And the whole place stops. 
I'm not joking. Everyone looked at me and I like didn't know what to do. Now I'm holding the ball and I look at the guys and, and we're just standing there and Gregory, he yells, shoot it. And so how Hidden Valley, their, their courtroom, their courtroom, their basketball, whatever, is set up. I'm, I don't know this sport. Is there's two beams that come out of the wall and two metal chains that suspend the backboard. And so I've got the ball. This is a big defining moment in my life. And I turn and I shoot the ball. And in slow motion, that ball goes right over the backboard in between the two chains. And the entire Hidden Valley varsity basketball team starts running around the room with their hands in the air yelling, it's good! I never got the basketball again. But if it was the entire Hidden Valley varsity basketball team on one team and Justin Cabot on the other team, 100% of the time, they're gonna win. Because I'm out of my depth. It is not my skill. It's not within my abilities. I have, there's no possible way I can overcome that force. But if it was the entire Hidden Valley varsity basketball team versus Justin Cabot and Michael Jordan, I'm gonna win. Not because of my abilities or my gifting or what I bring to the team, but it's because of the other guy. That guy can, that guy's gonna win on his own. And so if I just go where he tells me to go and do exactly what he tells me to sit, or do exactly what he tells me to do and never shoot the ball because I can't, we're gonna be fine. Right, if I just am obedient to what he says, go where he says, do what he says, say what he says, I am gonna win. Not because I'm good, but because the dude I'm with is good. Jesus is saying, hey, you don't have to be afraid because I'm on your team. The things that are outside of your control that are bigger than you, that are oppressing you, that are terrifying you, they're terrified of me. I'm in charge here. That when I'm on his team, and I live in obedience to him and I go where he says, I'm gonna see Jesus is gonna have victory in my life. But when I'm on his team and I live in disobedience to him and I don't do what he says and I'm not going where he goes, I'm saying, Jesus, you can be in charge of these aspects of my life, but you can't have the whole thing. I'm gonna find I have the wrong ball in the ball hitch. And every storm is gonna cause me to freak out and burn out. I'm gonna crash and burn. And so some applications for you and me as we wrap up today. For you and me, storms come. Everybody at some point in their life is going to find the bump on M Street and they're going to go too fast and you're gonna lose your trailer. That might just be for me, follow me. At some point for all of us, storms come and it could be economic right? The bottom falls out of the market. It could be vocational. I lost my job. It could be relationships. Until death do us part is what I thought I signed up for, but I just got served divorce papers. It could be your health. You worked real hard. You, you, you kept up on your, your life. You took all the PE credits but then you went to the doctor and he told you that you're on a timeline. It could be bereavement. Someone that you know and love and care about is dead. 
It could be parental. You have a kid who is running as fast as they can towards death and destruction. At some point, every single one of us will find a storm. And it can be because of, of wickedness and of sin and because of the consequences of our actions and the mistakes that we make. Absolutely. Sometimes storms come and you did nothing wrong. The disciples got into the boat because Jesus told them to get into the boat and they found themselves in the middle of the storm. Sometimes storms come when you didn't do anything wrong. But oftentimes when we are in those storms, we find I'm out of my depth. The Sea of Galilee is not a huge place, but it's just deep enough to drown in. The problems that you and I face might seem trivial to other people. It's not that big a deal, but they can often be just enough to drown in. This is destroying me. This is consuming me. This is overtaking me. And the disciples, they're fishermen, remember? They're prepared for this scenario. Oftentimes when storms come our way, we find out the nest egg that we had been saving just isn't enough. All the preparedness that I thought I would have didn't equip me for this. I thought I was ready for this circumstance and I'm not. And when we're in those storms, we realize I'm out of my depth and I'm going to die. And just like the disciples are panicked and sure that things are going to go poorly, they're realizing Jesus is far away on a mountain. Sometimes when you are, and I are in the middle of storms, it feels like Jesus is far away on a mountain and he doesn't see and he doesn't hear and he doesn't care and he can't help me. And what the disciples learn is when they're in the middle of their scary storm, Jesus comes walking right through the middle of it, completely unfazed by the most powerful forces that this world has to offer, the most destructive forces and says, don't be afraid, I'm here with you. I wanna get in the boat with you. Jesus is saying, in the middle of our storms, in the rain, in the darkness, it, Jesus sees us. Jesus sees when his people are in trouble and Jesus will come in the middle of our storms and say, hey, I will get in that boat with you. If you're in a storm right now, you need to know that Jesus sees. He's not unaware. He's not uncaring. He's not distant. He sees. And there's two texts that have to deal with a storm in the Bible and Jesus. The first one is you have Jesus who's in a boat, a storm comes, and with a word, he makes the storm go away. There will be storms that come in our life where we pray to Jesus, Jesus, will you remove this from me? And he does because he's able to, he can, and sometimes he does. We had a young man who had cancer in his shoulder one week. We pray over him. He comes back the next week and there's no cancer. It's crazy. Jesus said, go away storm, and it was gone. There are other times that you find yourself in a storm and you pray, Jesus, will you take this thing away from me? Jesus, will you help me? Jesus, can you be here with me? And Jesus says to you and me, don't be afraid, I'm here with you. I just wanna get in the boat with you. I just wanna get where we have to go together. And if you and I really meditate on that, you and I really take in the, okay, Jesus, I want you in this boat with me. What happens is you get what the disciples get. You find yourself safe at land immediately. Jesus gets in the boat and they are there. If you and I are in a storm, we need to be the kind of people who say, okay, Jesus, come be in the storm. I, I don't want to use you anymore. I don't want to try to control you. I want you to be in this boat with me. I'm giving myself to you. I need your help. Save me. And so this morning, we have the opportunity to take communion where we get to reflect on the ultimate storm that you and I could not overcome Jesus was hurled into. 
that Jesus faced, that Jesus overcame. It's the storm of sin, death, God's wrath. Jesus took on our behalf so we could be saved, so we can approach God boldly in our time of need and say, God, will you help me? And he would say, yes. Yes. 